and welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. On this week's show, we've the latest on the situation with first team players' wages, and we'll have a look at two Chelsea strikers, one pivotal in the present, and another who may well go down as the club's greatest ever frontman. All that to come on this episode of Straight Out of Cobham. Hello again, listener. How are you doing? Still no football to talk about, but as ever with Chelsea Football Club, there is always news. I'm Matt Davis-Adams. Joining me today for some blues news and views are the Athletics' three men in the know on Chelsea, if little else. Joke. Uh, first up, still revelling in the news that Alan Pardew has kept ADO Den Haag up in the Eredivisie after his visit there a few months back. It's Dominic Fifield. How are you doing? Very well. Um, I think we're all pleased for Pards. Also on board, I'm jealous of his youth and his penmanship, if not his keepy-uppy record. He recently anointed Matteo Kovacic as Chelsea's Player of the Year. It's Liam Toomey. I, I have started counting my kick-ups, so I will um, I will send you my PB by the end of the week. OK, try and get it into double figures. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> uh, finally, he's been investigating whether Felipe's mooted move to West London is a Catini go or a Catini no. It's Simon Johnson. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, on that, Simon, so you've contributed to a piece about Felipe Coutinho's future for The Athletic. Uh, Stefan Adams has tweeted in. He says, interested to get your thoughts on the possibility of us signing Coutinho. Um, having read the piece, Simon, it seems that it's not that possible. Um, Chelsea, not at the front of the queue, it'd be fair to say. Well, I, I just think with, with Chelsea... The one lesson you always learn with them is never say never, but certainly the cost of the deal uh, doesn't make any sense at this point in time for a player that is is sort of certainly seems to be on the wane. He's had a very sort of disappointing spell at Barcelona and now Bayern Munich uh, by the standards that were expected of him. Um, and even if Chelsea were to agree a loan deal, his wages would be a massive, massive issue. And... And Chelsea is certainly well stocked in uh, the attacking midfielder department, and of course, uh, are looking at perhaps younger uh, targets, as I refer to the, the Bayer Leverkusen player. So, um, so yeah, I'd be I'd be very surprised, given that Chelsea is struggling with the effects of the coronavirus as well, um, if they were going to outlay a certain amount of their budget on a player that's in uh, appears to be in a bit of decline. And what do you think, Dom? Would, would he be worth a punt or are Chelsea doing the right thing in, in not making themselves um, public suitors? I'm wary of the Philippe Coutinho suggestions that have, have sort of floated up on, on the continent. Um, I, I don't think he would he'd be progressive in terms of Chelsea's uh, future planning. Um, I think they've got yeah better focus on youth. I, I just, I think... I think that the transfer market in general is going to look very, very, very different when football does return. And it's going to potentially leave people like Coutinho, uh, you know, out on a limb, really, because I don't think people will be paying massive money for, for players like him. Um, and yet, you know, Barcelona will, will want to recoup as much as they possibly can for his services. So he could well be left in a, in limbo, really. Um, but but for Chelsea, that doesn't make sense. Not not least because, you know, in in the past, Chelsea have worked very very closely with his agent, uh, Keir Jurabchin, and at the moment, it seems as if that relationship maybe isn't quite as strong as it used to be. I think it would be uh, it, it would buck a trend if, if they suddenly went back in and 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 worked closely to bring a, a player like Coutinho back to England. It, 
doesn't really make a lot of sense given the the number of promising young players they already have in attacking midfield positions at the club already. All right, let's get to our regularly scheduled programming then. First up to date, we're talking money. So we spoke last week about the talks between Chelsea's men's senior squad and the club with regards to wage deferrals or cuts. Well, it seems neither will be happening. Chelsea put out a lengthy statement on their website over the weekend listing what the club are doing in all aspects with regards to the coronavirus pandemic. Somewhere in the middle of that was the section on the men's team, which includes the quote, At this time, the men's first team will not be contributing towards the club financially and instead the board have directed the team to focus their efforts on further supporting charitable causes. So no wage cut at all, it would seem. Um, Liam, what's the inside story here? Because we were thinking last week that they were going to kind of meet in the middle between the proposed 30% and the the 10% that the players wanted. Well, Simon's been the one leading the way for us on this. Um, But as I understand it, you know, the... The reason why talks are ongoing is because they can't agree on precisely what that wage cut will look like. Um, It seems like the players reached a point where they were comfortable, broadly speaking, with with 10%. um, But that wasn't something that the club were prepared to go with. And so instead, as they said in the statement, they've directed the players to continue with their charitable work. Um, while the negotiations continue between Cesar Aspilicueta, who's negotiating on behalf of the players, and Marina Granovskaya. Um, that's where we stand. And th- there was a, I think there was a bit of pushback over the weekend to reporters saying that, you know, it's not a dispute, but that there is an issue here in that not everyone is entirely on the same page yet, despite fairly extensive talks. But that is just the nature of the situation. You know, Chelsea and the players continue to do really good work in the community, but this is a complex negotiation. And at the moment, there there, there isn't a sign that we're close to um, a, a full agreement on it. As Liam says, Simon, you've been leading the way on this. What, what What's your understanding of, of how the relationship is between the senior figures at the club and the players b- because of this? Is, is it Has it turned acrimonious? Is it still being, being handled fairly reasonably by both sides? I think it's been handled fairly reasonably. I, I think the statement, the wording of the statement that Chelsea put out is very clever. Um, it, it, it's, it's, making a, it's making a point that there isn't um, anyone to blame or there's been a bit of fallout. Um, and I think that's very much the case. What what I got the impression of, though, was that um, Chelsea was certainly pushing for a 30% pay cut. Um, it was put to the players by Espelicuesa on a WhatsApp group that the first team players all are all on. Um, there wasn't too much resistance, um, but some players did ask, start asking questions. Um, and one of the questions was, well, is this money going to be used... Um, for the right reasons. In other words, am I am I effectively by taking a pay cut? Could I be potentially f- be funding my replacement in the first team? Because um, whilst it's already noble asking for players to take a pay cut you know, to get Chelsea through this tough tough time, like with other clubs, what we're seeing, um, you can imagine how well it would go down with players at any club, not just Chelsea, if um, that club then went off and spent loads of money in the next transfer window. You'd feel a little bit duped. Um, so that was definitely one of the um, concerns that was raised. Um, a few players did um, suggest why why uh, there wasn't a deferral on the table, which other clubs have agreed to. Um, 
but fundamentally, everyone said yes to the 10%. No one wanted to be the one that went against the main group. Um, but basically, Chelsea, have um, they want more than 10%. And that's where we are at this stage. But as I said at the start, the statement is very cleverly worded to make sure that no one's playing a blame game here. There's no finger pointing. I think the club very much wanted to avoid like an Arsenal situation where a statement was put out only uh, to say that everyone agreed something only for a few players, including Mesut Ozil, not to agree to it. So I think Chelsea are playing this quite cleverly uh, to make sure that there's no sort of acrimony between any of the parties. Dom, how does this compare with what we're seeing at other Premier League clubs? Simon's mentioned Arsenal, but but are Chelsea out on their own here and that they haven't been able to strike a deal yet? No, not, not in the slightest. I mean, only a few clubs have struck deals. I mean, Watford, Southampton and West Ham have deals in place. Aston Villa have agreed a 25% deferral for, I think, the next four months. Um, the Arsenal situation is ongoing and they jumped the gun with the statement um, because some of the players rejected that 12.5% cut subject to performance incentives. Um, then, you know, Tottenham are still talking, Derby County are still talking outside the Premier League it's as we as you mentioned last week I mean you asked whether it would be better if the Premier League just imposed a everybody must take a 30% pay cut or pay deferral um that simply doesn't it can't happen because each club's situation is is unique to that club and and that is why they are all talking at length with their first team squads at present to try and work out some kind of compromise. I mean, there, there will be some clubs that don't have any um, pay cut or deferral, I'm sure, when, when football returns and nothing will have happened in, in that regard. And there will be others that, like Chelsea in many ways, have, have deep pockets and can probably cope with it. But, you know, there's no income at the moment. This, and, and we don't know when football's coming, going to restart. So there is insecurity across the board. It's it's a unique situation, so we shouldn't be surprised that uh, talks are either happening or, or, or don't reach resolution quickly in a favourable way. Well, we shall keep reporting on it until we know for sure what is happening. One member of the Chelsea first team squad seems set to extend his stay at Stamford Bridge. We'll talk about him next. Well, after seemingly heading for the door marked exit at the start of the year, it now looks as though Olivier Giroud will be a Chelsea player for a little longer after reports emerged over the weekend that the Frenchman is close to agreeing a one-year extension to his contract, which was due to expire this summer. Um, Dom, this is this is quite the turnaround uh, from January when, when you were one of the people beating the drum to to have a look at him and, and get him back in the team. He, he did that and he's, he's proved that he's worth keeping around. Yeah, and this is a deal that makes sense for all parties, really. Um, it's not to say that Olivier Giroud will be a Chelsea player necessarily in the 2020-2021 season, when, whenever that starts. But the reality is he, he would have been out of contract on July the 1st. Um, this way, Chelsea have preserved a bit of value in him, albeit he's 33. Um, they... That they sort of got over this whole the, the the murky area that really you know do we extend players' contracts beyond June the thirtieth? Um, they will now he is a Chelsea player for as long as <laughs> for, for for while this season is resolved uh, the current season. 
um, and it potentially allows them to to look to selling a, a more sellable asset such as as Michi Bachuai when, whenever the transfer window does open and if there are indeed takers out there that have got money to spend um, in the new transfer window. So it does make sense. Um, I think it's a, a bit of a relief and it's in stark contrast really to, to Pedro and, and William at Chelsea who you would suspect now are, are on their way possibly at the end of June. So Liam, Dom talked there about the fact that the, the move makes sense for the club. What What's the attraction for Giroud? Is, is it the fact that he's settled in London, that he has got his place back or, or is there something else that would, that would make him want to stay? Well, I think primarily what this gives Giroud and Chelsea is an element of certainty in in a very uncertain time. Uh, we know it's a you know it's a massive turnaround from where Giroud was in January. He was absolutely desperate to join Inter in the final week of that window, um, but circumstances have completely changed, and um, th- I think he's probably looked at it and realised that this is not going to be a good uh, transfer window whenever it happens to be a free agent because who knows which clubs are going to be coming in for you, who knows when the transfer window will happen, when football resumes, you're much better off just extending any contract that you do have by one year and just kind of punting the decision until you have a bit more information as to where things stand. There's also the fact that, you know, the the thing that was driving Giroud's urgency to play this season was Euro 2020. Well, now that's happening in 2021. So, um, I think it's easy to see why he's made the decision he's made. I don't think it rules out the possibility that Giroud could leave Chelsea in the next transfer window because if you look at it from Chelsea's point of view, it also gives them a little bit of certainty and means that if he leaves, they could get some sort of fee for him. Um, So I I don't think any options are necessarily off the table, but it just gives all parties a little bit more security. A question here from Mac, who's tweeted the show to ask, does the renewal of Giroud's contract affect Chelsea's search for another striker when the market opens, say, Aubameyang? What do you think, Simon? Well, I think um, Chelsea were always going to be hard-pressed to sign two centre-forwards in the window, and that was even before this this crisis affected their bank balance. So um, I think this is a very astute bit of business by Chelsea, really, because as Dom inferred, if you're going to sell one of the two strikers, who are you going to make the most money from? It'll be Batshuayi, but then there's a question mark whether anyone will pay big money for Batshuayi right now uh, in the current circumstances. But I, I can't. I'd be surprised if Aubameyang, um, if Arsenal would sell Aubameyang to Chelsea, and certainly if Chelsea were going to pay big money for a player who again is in the latter part of his career, even though his goal return is is very very good. As for Giroud. Um, it seems like a long time ago now, but I, I spoke to him after what was my f- last game, um, which was um, Chelsea-Liverpool in the FA Cup. And um, he made it pretty clear that his first priority or his first choice was to stay at Chelsea. The question mark was always, um, I think, in his mind back then, was obviously he'd prefer a two, three-year deal. That was never going to happen. But a one-year extension... It kind of suits both parties, really, because if Giroud does see out his contract next season, um, he can always pursue a longer-term deal elsewhere. And Chelsea have got that safe backup option to Tammy Abraham and maybe another for next season. 
Well, Giroud might be essential to Chelsea in 2020, but one man who was one of the key figures in the Blues' recent history has a far greater legacy. We'll talk Didier Drogba next. Liam, Simon and Dom have all contributed to a joint read which is up on The Athletic now on the Chelsea life and times of Didier Drogba. Um, now I'm biased, but honestly, I think this is one of the best pieces I've read anywhere this year. So do check out the full article if you haven't. And remember, you can enjoy The Athletic for free for 90 days by going to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. That's theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. Uh, we're going to talk through some of the key points now, but it is such a detailed piece. You really got to read the whole thing to get the most from it. Uh, let's have some Drogba stats to start us off, though. Played 382 times for Chelsea, scoring 164 goals. That puts him four. Fourth on the club's all-time list of top scorers, ahead of the likes of Osgood, Bentley and Greaves. Uh, across his two spells at the club, he won four Premier League titles, four FA Cups, three League Cups and, of course, the 2012 Champions League. However, all that wouldn't have happened had Drogba got his wish when Marseille accepted a Blues bid for his services back in 2004, right? Yeah, it's, in- it's incredible. The remarkable thing about Drogba's story, I think, and the thing that surprised me when I was, when I was looking back on it um, and going through his book, which was very useful for the piece, was how much of his first four years at Chelsea he, he, he spent trying to leave and and how opposed he was to the move in the first place. Uh, you know, he describes himself, and this was a few years later when he was a Chelsea player, as feeling disgusted at the prospect of joining Chelsea from Marseille. He was so attached to that club, even though he'd only spent a season there. Um, scored, I think, 32 goals in all competitions, and and he's still absolutely revered in Marseille. Um, but they made the decision to to cash in on him when the when the money came in, and 24 million, you know, it sounds like nothing now, but uh, was a huge sum of money then. He was the most expensive African player ever, and and then when you go through the sort of first four years of Ch- Drogba's Chelsea career, you know he he doesn't really settle. He's getting booed by Chelsea fans because he's diving all the time, um, and and appears to admit diving in an interview. Uh, he, he talks about leaving to Mourinho, who talks him out of it. Then when Mourinho gets sacked, he talks about leaving again, um, and even then up to you know 2012, he's he's told he can leave by Scolari he's told he can leave by Villas but well he 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 sort of threatens to leave um under Villas Boas and that's six months before Chelsea win the Champions League so it really is a roller coaster with Drogba and there were lots of moments on that journey where his his Chelsea legacy could have gone a very different way um and that's why I think it's such a compelling story to revisit yeah if we spin back on to 2006 Liam, Liam's touched on the fact that uh he was booed by his own supporters. A match against Manchester City in March of that year particularly stands out, given that he got booed for a supposed dive, despite the fact that he'd scored both goals in a 2-0 winner. I'm struggling to think of a Chelsea player who, who's ever managed to turn the tide so amazingly as Drogba did from, from where he was to, to where he ended up. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that adaptation period he found really difficult. They were... He struggled with the physicality, which is remarkable when you think you look at the size of him. Um, but he, he he was injured for periods in those first two seasons at, at Chelsea. He he didn't get the culture of um, the no diving. I mean, he was he was he was raised and in, in France as well. Um, to if you if you get touched in the in the box, if you get you know if there's a tap on your ankles, you go down. And and that's that that was. The, the sort of attitude that he brought to English football and obviously over here 
um, it provoked a very different kind of reaction. And when your own supporters are booing you, I mean, you, he must have thought this this is fractured. I can't see how you repair this this damage. And he makes the point, and and it's in in the article that he he was almost liberated by Mourinho's faith in him. The, the, an exchange in pre season, I think, in the summer of two thousand and six, where he he sort of got the backing of Mourinho and it was just what he needed to hear at that time because he, he was having doubts and for Mourinho to come in and say no no we, we're going to go and we're going to defend our, the title that we've won the last two seasons we're going to pursue the Champions League albeit none of those things happened in that in that last year but he went back to England with this renewed strength and faith in his own ability and, and he was prolific in that third season that is the, the, the real year where he started turning things around at 30 old goals in the you know, as a Chelsea player, and and it convinced the the locals that he was a a talismanic figure that they could rely upon, um, and he completely reinvented himself in that respect, and that, that demonstrates also his his own strength of character. For, albeit he is a player that's always worn his heart on his sleeve, which which is why in those first four years, it did seem to lurch from one extreme to an, to the other, and. Obviously, post Mourinho, when 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 Mourinho had, had left, he had very very tempestuous relationships with most of the head coaches that came in at Chelsea. Um, so Simon Dom's mentioned there that the part that Jose Mourinho played in, in persuading Drogba to stick around, but there was also a text message from a teammate which which did a lot to convince him to stay too. Yeah, uh, not the only contribution Frank Lampard has has made to the Chelsea Football Club. Those two had a very good relationship on and off the pitch scored many goals, set up many goals for each other. And uh, Frank Lampard did send him a message saying, basically, look, we can win the Champions League together. Uh, We can win the league together. Um, And he was right, wasn't he? (laughs) Certainly was. But it was was very important for Chelsea to keep Drogba. I think the first couple of years, people forget that he very much sort of shared um, the striking role, particularly with Ida Johnson, who was a... A different kind of striker, but was a much better foil um, in many ways for the Duff and Robin combination. Um, Johnson would often drop deep and then play balls in for those two wingers to run in behind. Well, whereas Drogba obviously had a different game. Um, but Johnson left in two thousand six. Um, his relationship with Mourinho started to sour. Um, and then, of course, as, as we discussed on a previous show, Shevchenko came in, and in many ways that sort of showed. A different side of Drogba, the sort of the Drogba that wanted to sort of rise to the competition, and he knew that Shevchenko was was Roman's man, and it was very much a, a challenge being laid down to him, which he very much um, rose to, and and basically from that point on, as as Dom highlighted with the amount of goals he scored that season, he became undroppable. And and Chelsea would always miss him whenever he was injured or away at the Africa Cup of Nations. Of course, he was the golden boot winner in the double winning season. People sort of tend to to forget that contribution because of what he did in the Champions League two years later. But there's no doubt about it. If if you were to sort of do a poll of the of the not just the best Chelsea strikers, but the best uh, strikers the Premier League has seen, then Drogba will poll very highly because whilst he didn't score as many goals as the likes of Thierry Henry and or, or Wayne Rooney, if you asked opposition defenders 
who they feared playing against, then Drogba would be right up there. And, and that's why we refer to players such as Senderos. And Liam got some great quotes of Robert Huth, um, which I particularly enjoyed reading. <laughs> Robert Huth, of course, went from being his teammate to being on the receiving end and certainly didn't enjoy being the latter. Yeah, he talks about um, a game he played against Chelsea with Stoke where all four defenders were um, were given a difficult time by Mr Drogba on that day. And prior to that, of course, he'd been sent off in the 2008 Champions League final. It once again looked as though his Chelsea career was over. Uh, he stuck around. Simon's mentioned the 2009-10 double winning season there when he, when he won the Golden Boot. Dom, do you think that was his best season at Chelsea 09-10? Yeah, possibly. That's when he was most unplayable for for opposing defences he just had the the belief and the ability to to make defenders look diminished I mean they just shrunk in his presence in fairness journalists did as well in the mix zone if I remember right he's a massive massive man with a massive massive presence to him and the charisma as well off the pitch I mean he's yeah he was something else and you know when he was on full flight in full flight um, rampaging through teams, there was just no stopping him at all. Um, an absolute joy to watch, um, and yeah, one of the one of the greats. That he he also had that ability to to hog the limelight, and up to up to twenty twelve in the Champions League, that was often for for bad reasons. I mean, two thousand and eight, we we talk about then with, with the sending off in Moscow, but a year later with the Avribo Ofrebo game at Stamford Bridge and the expletives into a into a television camera right at the end, uh, calling it all a disgrace. Um, it looked as if he wasn't going to fulfil that part of his his destiny, his great plan. But then, you know, we have spoken about this before. But but twenty twelve is is just the scripting of, of a dream. I mean, his scriptwriter is something else um, to do everything that he achieved at, at the Allianz, Allianz Arena that night, culminating in in the winning penalty in the in the shootout, but also having you know conceded a penalty, um, you know, which Robin misses and his, his late equaliser in normal time. I mean, it's, if you just go back over that evening, it's, it just defies belief. But that was a man grabbing hold of his destiny and and making sure that a club realized its its biggest dream and you know typically he was at the center of it all Didier Drogba sent off in Moscow four years ago couldn't take a penalty against Manchester United this to make Chelsea champions of Europe Drogba scores History is made. Chelsea, the champions of European football. How good does that sound? Liam, destiny is is something which features heavily in the article. That the Champions League final is where it begins and where it ends. And, and Dom's mentioned there all the incredible things that happened in this game. But but when it came came to taking the penalty, Drogba was certain that it was going to go in. Yeah, even though he had no plan in his head for what he was going to do, and I. I thought that was a really interesting place to start the article because it, I just, aside from being the moment that defines his legacy, I just found it really interesting that that Drogba was was so certain that he would score without knowing how. <laughs> 
<laughs> he didn't know what type of penalty he would take. He even contemplates a Penenka, which can you imagine how crazy that moment would have been um, if he'd done that and, and scored or even done that and missed? His his belief in destiny, you know, it's underpinned part, partly by the fact that he's a, he's a very religious guy. Um, but I think it's also the fact that after 2008, he says in his book about, you know, making the promise to Roman Abramovich's crying son in the dressing room, I will win the Champions League for you. He, like a lot of the other players in that 2012 squad, felt as that run was going on, this is our year. Even though that belief was continually tested by the penalties he gave away, by the other twists in games, you know, John Terry getting sent off at the new Camp, um, chance after chance for, for two of the finest teams in Europe against Chelsea. They kept believing, and I think Drogba's belief was was stronger than most. And when you add that to the fact that he was such a big game player, you know, if, if you had to pick one one player from from Chelsea's history but maybe from from modern football history to to win you a final i think drogba would be right near the top of the list and of course the the crowning moment of that is munich that that header and then that penalty i was just going to say um i, I had the privilege of um covering every game home and away of, of, of that campaign and you sh- you shouldn't forget as well that that Drogba made his first intervention in the home group game against Valencia, um, where Chelsea had to win that match um, to go even through to the last 16. And and typically, he stood up. And this was a, a period of time when he wasn't having the best of times under Vias Boas, but he scored an early header and, and then scored the, the third goal in the second half to make it comfortable. And, and so fast-forwarding to the final... I, I'm always someone that you, you just you just never know what's going to happen in a penalty shootout. But I, I can only emphasise how everyone kind of knew that he was going to score. Um, he, he just had this he just had this overwhelming feeling that it's not even in doubt. Um, but this was his chance to sort of make amends now, and and of course that's exactly what he did, and and wrote himself into Chelsea folklore. And in fact, just a few months after that, Chelsea fans voted him uh, Chelsea's greatest ever player. Now I don't know whether their their opinions have changed since then, but there's no doubt about it. Drogba will always be referred to as one of Chelsea's greatest ever players, regardless whether he's one, two, three, or four. And we thought that that penalty in 2012 was going to be the last time he kicked a ball in in a Chelsea shirt, but of course, Tommy, he came back as uh, as Jose Mourinho did it and played a. a a part in the 2014-15 title-winning campaign. At the time he came back, I remember thinking, this is odd, he can only surely spoil his legacy here. But actually, he added to it by, by what he did off the pitch, even if it wasn't so so effective and impactful on the pitch that season. Yeah, it, it was about his influence when he when he came back. And yeah, he wasn't... He, he, was, he, was, a, he was coming back as a, a bit part player, basically, a, a backup to... To Diego Costa, um, who who had joined the the, the previous summer, um, along with Cesc Fabregas, and in, in sort of two of the more master strokes, really from from the, the Chelsea hierarchy and Mourinho in, in that in that particular time. I'm just looking now, I mean, Drogba got four league goals that season, so he, you know he wasn't prolific, but he he still had the aura about him, and and you know if you if you're an opposing defender who has been buffeted around the pitch by Diego Costa for 60 minutes, 70 minutes, 75 minutes and we all know what Costa was like uh, to, to, to play against 
you know, the board goes up and Diego Costa trots off. You, you allow yourself a sigh of relief. Then you see Didier Drogba coming on. I mean, my word, you, you'd be dispirited, to put it mildly. And, and he still had that, the, the physique and the, the ability to bully opponents. That was key. Mourinho spoke highly of him that season. Um, he he did play a part. He 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 was he was he wasn't integral in the same way as he had before, but but he 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 helped inspire that team to a, a title in in Mourinho's second year back of his second spell. And his his bond with the club really was which was which had been established long established and and enhanced by by Munich in 2012. But but that that bond persisted. And it was it was no great surprise um, it, to remember seeing him up in Roman Abramovich's box um, in the the game in December 2015, just after Mourinho's sacking, when when the, the club was an absolute state. I mean, the, the supporters were accusing the the existing players of being snakes and for betraying the the manager, their greatest ever manager. Uh, it was it was open revolt in the stands, and and who did Abramovich turn to as a sort of just as a, a prep for his presence just to provide a bit of a healing of the situation well well there was Didier Drogba sitting alongside Gus Hudink the incoming interim manager up in up in the box and I haven't I'm in no doubt that that helped in in some way just allay the, the fears to see such a yeah an icon of the club um, of its recent past present and and providing a bit of stability for for the future even if he doesn't ever have a formal position at the club within the coaching staff ever again. As we finish off, Liam, Dom's mentioned a, a position within the club there. That's something that the club were keen on, but Drogba less so. Where does his future lie, do you think, involved in the game, if not as a coach? Yeah, well, I think the situation has changed over time. So if you read you know, Drogba's book, he, he, he very much sounds like a man who wants to come back to Chelsea as soon as possible. Um but a bit of time has passed since then, and, and you know he went off and finished his career in in North America, um, and he now part owns Phoenix Rising, um, and he's currently enrolled in a UEFA course um, about kind of leadership in football and 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 looking more at the business side, the the big picture. He he did originally start the process um, to do his coaching badges, but he he very quickly realised that that wasn't the path that he wanted to go down and um and i think that that has been the main reason why he hasn't come back to chelsea yet because chelsea stance hasn't changed they still say that you know if drogba wants to come back if he signals any desire to to be a formal part of the club again then there will be a job for him whatever he wants um, but he he feels a big responsibility to try and improve the situation in in Ivory Coast, both in terms of football, but also in terms of the wider country. You know, the hospital he's built there has, has been handed over to the coronavirus treatment. He's he's got a mobile clinic there as well that all falls under the umbrella of his foundation, and he's planning to run for a position with the Ivorian FA. So he, he's clearly interested in trying to make a, a bigger impact on on football and on society. Who knows? Maybe he will come back at, at some point when he's finished sorting out <laughs> sorting out all of those bigger things. Didier Drogba, not so much cult hero as straight up hero. Right, that's just about it for this week. Chaps, what can subscribers to The Athletic look forward to, to reading from you? Liam, I'm guessing the Kovacic Player of the Year piece has sparked some debate in the comments section. 
Uh, it has a little bit, although I was when I first sort of dipped my toe in the water of Chelsea Twitter about a week ago, asking who they felt would be Chelsea's player of the year. I was surprised at the 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 size of the consensus around Kovacic actually. Um, that might have been because, you know, the Bayern Munich game was so recent and he was so clearly Chelsea's best player in that game. But, um, you know, I think that's proved a a popular pick overall. I couldn't really go for for Tammy Abraham after Simon had picked Mason Mount as his young player of the year. So, uh, yeah, blame me. (laughs) (laughs) I will. I have and I'll continue to do so. Um, So, so, so this week... um, I'm working on a slightly quirky piece. Um, two young players, two brothers who used to be in Chelsea's academy, Phil and James Younghusband, if you remember those names. Um, I certainly never be- forget the surname. Yes, become fully-fledged internationals for, for the Philippines and both have more than 100 caps. So I'll be speaking to them this week and, and doing a nice piece on, the, on their interesting careers post-Chelsea. <laughs> Looking forward to reading that and finding out. How about you, Don? What's on the agenda? Well, I'll let Simon um, talk about the, the the joint piece that I think is in in the pipeline. But I've got various projects <laughs> that are ongoing and might may take weeks to come to fruition. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm still I'm still working on the likes of uh, Nile Ranger and uh, a few a uh, few pieces to do with other London clubs as well. Simon, tell us about the joint read then. So we're doing um, a piece on on players that Chelsea wanted to buy but didn't. Um, so there's some familiar names um, that will be on the list and perhaps some that might raise an eyebrow or two. So, um, yeah, just going going through some of the stories and and uh, perhaps telling Chelsea fans what might have been, which they may see as a positive that they Chelsea missed out or, or may uh, sort of live to regret and sort of wish that it had happened. Good stuff. Remember, you can enjoy The Athletic for free for 90 days by going to theathletic.com slash ChelseaPod. That's theathletic.com slash ChelseaPod, where you can read all those articles and more. Uh, Do join us again same time next week. For now, though, from Dom, from Liam, from Simon and from me, it's bye for now. 